0: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Rogue Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Picard. thank you as always for joining us. We're now over 500 hits in terms of the podcast which is really really exciting for us. As always please keep the feedback coming in as we do want the show to remain as fresh as possible and explore lots of new conversations so any feedback on people we can speak to we'd really really appreciate it. Last week's discussions with Claire alone about the journey of skateboarding both domestically and internationally were really well received and as mentioned we will hopefully be speaking to Claire at some point in 2021 to see what effects the Olympics have had on the traditionally counterculture sport. This week we've got a great show for you as we've got a really dynamic discussion with sports psychologist Helen Davis. Helen has a huge amount of sports under her belt including working with the iconic boat race team from Cambridge and you'll hear more about that shortly but first just our quick request to our listeners make sure you hit subscribe on whatever platform you're using follow us on the various social media platforms and you can interact with our guests on there too don't forget to check out our website theroadmonkey.org and there you will find our direct email if you want to get in touch with questions or suggestions for episodes moving forwards Okay, without further ado, let's get into episode six. Hello and welcome to the show, Helen.
1: Hello, uh, thanks for having me, Kevin.
0: You're more than welcome. How are we getting on today, all right?
1: Yes, I'm very well, thank you. I'm busy, but I'm good form, thanks.
0: Yeah, but it never seems to stop. You're off to Edinburgh, it sounds like, this coming weekend.
1: That's right. Yes, I'm off to the swim meet there, um, which I'm looking forward to this weekend to see some good swimming and meet some of the athletes that I work with.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, for those of the, our listeners who have not come across you before, if you can just give us a little bit of a, a background to your story and kind of how you got to where you are.
1: Yeah, so my name's uh, Helen Davis and I'm a childhood sports psychologist. Um, I'm also a teacher. Um, I, my, my background uh, is a psychology degree uh, many years ago from Cardiff University. I then did a postgraduate certificate in education at Cambridge and became a primary school teacher where I worked for pretty much on and off for sort of 25 years in primary education. And I suppose about, I suppose it was probably about six years ago or so now, I Decided that um, I'd quite like a career change. Um, wanted to use my skills from teaching, and sport has always been a massive part of my life. I swam competitively as a as a junior. Um, Swimming still very much part of my life today. Um, I still compete um, as a master swimmer, sort of nationally and internationally as well. And I really felt that I wanted to do something where I was well, I really had a passion for it, and so sport was kind of a natural thing that um, came to me. And at the time, I was uh, swimming with some Ironman athletes. I'm very fortunate to be swimming with uh, two athletes who were in the top ten at the world at the time. And they were so negative about their swimming, and I got very interested in their psychology behind the negativity that they had with their swimming. It was almost like their, their races began uh, once they got on the bike and then did the run. And so it really became a bit of a hobby for a while. I sort of read about psychology of sports. And I thought, you know, this this could be an area that I, I could potentially work in. It really fascinates me and really interests me. So I then uh, found that I could do a master's, get the qualification, do a master's in sport and exercise psychology, which I did at Staffordshire University. And then started working as a, a sports psychologist. For a little while, I, I did sort of part-time teaching and part-time sports psychology but i just found the work grew and grew within sports psychology and really took off and it got to the point where it, it just wasn't sustainable for me to do both so i uh i stopped teaching after 25 years which was a really big decision and became a full-time sports psychologist uh, i suppose that was probably about three years ago now
0: and uh, it's been spiraling ever since by the sounds of it
1: yeah, I mean, I feel I've been very fortunate um, in the opportunities that I've had, the athletes that I've worked with in various different capacities, the variety of sports that I've worked in. It's a very varied job. I really, really love it. Um, and it's been a decision that I'm I'm just thrilled that I've made because um, every day brings something new.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a, a lot to be said there, like you said, actually. What am I passionate about, and then finding that curiosity and it almost becomes a thread that you you almost stumbled upon, and be, before you knew it, it had turned into a complete career change.
1: Yeah, I think so. and I, I think my, my my background in swimming and in sport um, has just been part of my life for so long. Um, and I still continue to love it today. so but 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 what's been so fascinating for me, I suppose, is is learning about so many different sports. Um, hearing about people and their performance environments and what they're like and the challenges that that can bring, the opportunities that that can bring, and you just end up meeting some really, really fascinating and inspiring people.
0: So I'm gonna I'm gonna delve straight into that. There, you mentioned there about coming from I guess the, the swimming background and, and learning about the different sports, and I think that's something not that swimming specific, but it's certainly industry specific where. You can live in your world, and we have kind of quite a singular view on what goes on. And the, I know speaking to you previously, the range of sports you've you've worked with must have really given you such an insight into kind of their worlds.
1: Oh, absolutely! And that's the thing when when you're working with um, individuals, is you you really learn much about the intricacies of the sport uh, you know the vocabulary and the language uh, the context all of those things which um, for some sports obviously I have quite a lot of knowledge in just by the fact of I'm, I'm interested in them and I know about them but but more and more um, I've come across sports which you know I really didn't know a lot about and I'm, I'm really curious I find it absolutely fascinating learning about uh you know the 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 performances that they have the training that they have the individuals who are involved in the sport and 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 what it means for them so um it's really interesting
0: so let's let's dive into a few of the sports there no swimming pun intended but you've obviously worked with a range of sports and not just swimming so maybe pick out a few that certainly we've not come across um i know we've explored so far a few on on our podcast journey so far but listening to the list, you've reeled off to me previously yours is hugely extensive
1: yeah as i say i feel really fortunate to have been involved in so many really i mean that you know sports that really i didn't know anything about um you know it ranges i mean i do a lot of work in swimming and triathlon cycling particularly but but i've i've worked in boxing cricket um hockey futsal fencing Golf, I mean, there really have been numerous uh, different sports. Um, I've done quite a lot of work in disability sports. And boccia is one sport that has um, it, been very interesting to work in. And I've done that for a couple of years now. Um, it's a Paralympic sport and it's sort of similar to bowls. It's like a, a target ball sport that was designed for individuals with severe disabilities, um, where sort of two sides compete, either as individuals or pairs or in teams. And uh, that's been a a very interesting uh, sport with the challenges that come with physical disabilities, working with clients who have uh, disabilities and and, and what that brings for them.
0: I think that's something I found very early on in my journey. So prior to moving up to where I am now, uh, over a decade ago, I worked at a school for children with special needs. Uh, Some of those were physical disabilities, like you mentioned there, that have physical impairments. And it was very, very eye-opening when you realize that the range of adaptions that you could actually make to not just in sport but you know classrooms and all those sorts of things to actually allow what we would maybe naively um, have as normal day-to-day living and you would actually go well actually we can adapt a few of these things and allow a lot more of our sports and activities to become a lot more accessible to a lot more people.
1: Yes, uh, you know it's uh, it, you know I like to think that that disability sport is just going from strength to strength in this country. You know there are so many opportunities for uh, disabled athletes. Uh, the, the logistics around that I think is definitely an, an area which I have discussed with disabled athletes in that they're very reliant sometimes on other people. Um, yes, coaches, but also carers um, to help them to be able to train and perform in their sport. Um, which, you know, psychologically can bring challenges for those
0: athletes. Yeah, definitely. And I think something that not coming from a psychology background, but certainly coming from working as part of a multidisciplinary team, you're seeing much more collaborative working. Certainly now it's not an athlete, uh, regardless of what sport it is, going off and just having a one-off individual session with a psychologist, it's a much more um, coexistence, I guess, between sometimes coaches, S&Cs, psychologists, like you said, their carers, uh, carers, parents, those sorts of things.
1: Yes, and, and, and you know, you know, as a psychologist, the more uh, people who are involved in the network with the athlete, the, the, the better, from my point of view. You know, get, getting um, you know insights from from different people within the team obviously is really valuable, but it just helps you build up the picture of the athlete as a whole um, and how they can be best be supported. So, I mean, I, I like I, I like the word multidisciplinary team, but I actually prefer the word interdisciplinary team. That kind of the word into being that it's we're not working in isolation; that we're working together and collaborating, which um, I know can bring can be challenging in some performance environments. But the kind of the gold standards would be, if if that were the case, then I, I think for the athlete moving forward, that's the best thing.
0: One hundred percent. And I think it's a it's a hallmark whether you're watching a, a group of mechanics that are working on a Formula One pit stop or a group of people working on poolside and an Olympic training center. The the seamlessness, like you talked about there of the, that interdisciplinary where there isn't almost everyone in their own little silos is something that actually is that marker for success. And you, you might see it on face value from a performance point of view, but then when you actually go and visit these environments, you go, I can see exactly how these athletes are allowed to do what they do because everyone around them works collaboratively to get the best out of them.
1: That's right. And, and, you know, from the athlete's point of view, knowing that they have that support network there from a broad depth of, of, a range of, disciplines i think is 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 a comfort for them but also that they know that everybody's walking uh, you know working towards a common goal
0: for sure so pulling that together a little bit obviously you've had a very diverse journey in a relatively short space of time from a psychology point of view so now you've obviously built from you know like you said that first kind of bit of teaching and a bit of psychology working alongside each other to where it is now with your company could you just expand mm-hmm. a little bit on that and really how that's evolved into the range of services that you offer now
1: yeah well my my consultancy is called think belief perform uh that's a name that my children um uh, gave gave to the company when i first set it up uh the reason i particularly like it is uh the word think is in there and i would say that looking at at people's thinking is something which i do an awful lot of in my practice and how that thinking whether it's effective or not helpful or not unhelpful or not uh people's belief systems is is certainly a big um element of the work that i do I, i pretty much um within the consultancy work with individuals uh teams uh coaches um, I, I would kind of say really that my, my work extends to kind of four different areas, I would say. Um, so the first area, I guess, is I, I would call it outreach. So this is where I write for magazines, I give talks and workshops, I lecture about sports psychology. I might go into a, you know, a university and talk to their students Um And and it's general kind of sports psychology education, I would suppose, in terms of what athletes can do to help improve their performances. Second, um, performance strategy, I would say, that's kind of working with individuals to teach skills, techniques, strategies that will help them perform better. You know, often I think people think people have to go and see a sports psychologist because they have an issue but that really isn't the case. Some people come along and say, I think I'm doing okay. I, I, I'd like to do everything that I can and work work at the psychological side. It's not something that I've done. Um, you know, I'm hoping that you can help me be, be even better than I am already. So performance strategy is, is, is the second one. Uh, third one, I'd say is performance barriers. So this might be working with athletes or coaches um, to address specific areas what they, that they feel maybe are holding them back. Again, that might be uh, related to their kind of belief system that they feel that they've got these limiting beliefs that are limiting their performance in some way. And then finally, uh, the fourth area, I guess I would say is kind of team performance, uh, where I work with teams to kind of provide individual or group support. I help them with creating a team vision, um, team building, cohesion, collaboration, collaboration. Um, and, and moving forward as a team to get the best performances out of themselves so generally I'd say those are sort of the four main areas that I work within that as part of my you know consultancy and then I work for a few other clubs and agencies around that.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating I'd like to I guess pull a couple of um, anecdotal examples out of that so a couple of the areas that I think most of us could relate to is those individual barriers that we, we overcome and that are, that's not sport specific. I guess like everyone in their life probably has internal beliefs or limiting beliefs that they feel like are, are holding them back. So have you, have you got any examples from sports or, or athletes you've worked with? Obviously we can't say names, um, but just yeah. some stories really to kind of talk about what that process actually looks like.
1: Um. So I, I guess um, I could take an example. Um, I worked with a referee actually uh, in in Um and that was really um, looking at limiting beliefs around what you know. As, as a as an umpire, you know, as a, as a referee in a game, you know, you're very visible on the court. You have uh, obviously the, the players who can challenge you. Uh, you also have members of the audience who can make comments about your umpiring um at the time. So, you know, when I when I work with athletes, um, one of the first things I do is is get them to start sort of noticing their thoughts. That sounds quite simple, but it's actually really quite hard for people to do. Um, you know, really listening to your inner voice and what you say to yourself. Um and particularly in, in you know in the case that I'm describing there, you know, response to Comments that people make um, really can have, a, you know, a detriment on people's belief systems. So another example, I'm just thinking of. You know, I worked in um, esports as well, um, which is a very interesting um, area to work in. And for for the competitors in esports, they have a massive fan base. I mean, thousands and thousands of people follow uh, these athletes on Twitter, and they are making live comments about their performance the whole time. So so that kind of external Um, the the, the external audience as it were is is commenting and making judgment on people's performance whether it's an umpire whether it's a player and that can have a real impact on people's belief systems about you know other people are thinking this about me other people are judging me on this and other people are thinking that and over time that can really become um, limiting to you as an individual if um, you know you take that to heart you find it um affects affect your performance and how you're actually doing something in relation to what other people are saying to you uh so that 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 that's an example of something that i I would work on with somebody is is start looking at their thinking looking at what they're saying to themselves about that and start working on on trying to look at what I do a lot of is kind of what I call evidence based thinking so we can fall into thinking traps and thinking habits like where we second guess things we make assumptions um we we fortune tell um we we make predictions about the future and assume there's a negative consequence um on us and i do quite a lot of education in terms of thinking types and habits and unhelpful habits that we can fall into and then use evidence and reality and logic to try and challenge those beliefs you know, does it make sense that you're thinking in that way? Um, you know, is there any evidence to to say that that actually is the case? And quite often, our beliefs are not based on reality, and actually, they don't make sense. So it's it's, it's working on challenging those habits, uh, which you know do, doesn't come easily to some people. It, as I say to people, it can take quite a period of time to work on with people because generally, beliefs are quite ingrained in us. just like anything you can change habits
0: you just have to work at them yeah and I think one of the things you talk about there in terms of habits this is something that so many people I guess don't even think about really whether you're a sports person or not but if you actually list a number of things of the day that you may actually think you do by choice but you don't it's just a habit of either your environment or just a a routine that you've done for so many years that you just do and you don't even think about it and it's Mm. It is really interesting when you start to unpick things with athletes, when they actually go, I have no idea why this is going wrong. And then when you actually delve into it, they're they're almost unconsciously aware of all these different things they're doing. They just don't join the Mm. link between that and performance.
1: Yeah, and I I think, you know, interesting your word delving into it. You know, we lead such busy lives and, and athletes have such busy training schedules that actually people think about psychology in very short snippets of time, an awful lot. Um, You know, the old conversation here and there, but, but what I find is when, you know, when you sit down and and even spend a whole hour talking about somebody's performance, they very, very rarely have done that and actually really delved into it, really thought about it um, in a lot of detail. And I would say that the work that I do with athletes is very, very detailed. You know, we really explore things in great depth and, and it gives athletes an opportunity to to, to really realise what they're like in the performance environment and, and and sometimes things surprise them. Um and it's learning about those habits or or you know, learning about times when maybe you're more vulnerable to unhelpful thinking, looking at your kind of timetable, looking at across the a weekend of events when you might be more vulnerable to vulnerable to have unhelpful thinking versus helpful thinking. And then making plans. So a, a big, a big part of the work that I do with athletes is one, once you've established what people's belief systems are like and what, what their thinking is like, is working at trying to address, are these helpful for me in, in given moments? And can I plan for those moments? Can I make a prep, you know, mental preparation plan that's going to help me if I find I'm in a negative spiral or if I find that I'm I'm noticing that I'm second guess- guessing or, or whatever it might be that, that that's typical of the athlete that I'm working with. And then it gives them a focus. It gives them um, comfort knowing that they're going to a, to a race or a competition with a plan in place, a mental plan. They've got a physical plan. They've got a tactical plan probably. They might even have a technical plan, but they have a psychological plan which gives them things to focus on. making sure that they're thinking in the most effective way possible for whatever the um, performances that they have coming up.
0: That links quite nicely back, I guess, to what you said about the the multi and the interdisciplinary team. Um, Because Mm. I'm thinking of a conference I went to recently where a coach actually spoke around those sorts of things and actually said, one of their supervisors effectively picked them up and said, we've observed you in a performance environment. These are some you know, uh, downfalls or shortcomings in these particular areas and these are things you're going to train and practice and, and work on with the rest of your team to make sure that in the moment, it, I know obviously we talked about there from an athlete performance point of view, but obviously a, l- a lot of the environments are athletes uh, and even if you're in wider business in your working environments, the the pressures can actually, from outside, from other people, can be managed to help an athlete perform better. So the athlete doesn't technically get better through any intervention with them, but actually, kind of like what you mentioned with the referee, that there, there's people outside of the performance um, that can actually influence on it positively.
1: Yeah, I mean, that the, the support network is... Um it is so vital that that uh, you know athletes surround themselves with people who they trust um that, that enable them to cope and adapt positively to change and to to significant challenges and adversity which you're going to get in sport you know it's it, it's not always an easy ride um so you know working together to try and help produce kind of consistent sustainable high performance is all about looking at um, challenges collectively how they can be overcome and working together uh, towards that common goal
0: so you mentioned there at the start that your journey kind of maybe accidentally fell upon you when you were still working around a couple of Ironman athletes selling your teaching days how's that kind of impacted now because I know you've recently started working in an the area of Iron Man specifically with some online courses and actually what what influence do you think that was some of the stuff you've seen now or from when you first started to actually go on and create this this piece of work and and tell us a little bit about it
1: yeah um I, I think it's funny I think I Man and teaching actually are two threads which really do still impact my work today. I mean firstly teaching. I, I think when I moved careers and became a sports psychologist, I, I thought it's a completely different uh, pathway and, and the job is going to be so different. And actually, the, the, what, the value that my teaching background has given me in terms of what I'm doing now with my work is, is it has been invaluable and I think I really didn't appreciate the skills that teaching has given me. I work a lot with young people and a lot with uh, teenagers and I think my teaching background really helps me there. Because I'm working with young people and teenagers, I work an awful lot with parents. Obviously, I've spent 25 years in a teaching career working with parents um, and young people. So so I, I'm very passionate about bringing sports psychology to teenagers, young people from an early age and helping them develop um, psychological skills that won't just help them in sport and in high performance, but can permeate into their lives as well. So I would certainly say teaching and education um, continues to be and I think will be um, a big part of the work that I do. In terms of Ironman, I guess it's it's where I I sort of started the sports psychology journey. And, And Ironman is such a interesting uh, endurance sport because it just goes on for so long um <laughs> far and, too long uh, yeah uh, you know and it gives people so much thinking time and and going and doing an ironman it is it's such a, a high level of competition because there's such a circus that goes with ironman um that, that the performance environment is just so kind of dynamic and changeable um and 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 people, that, you know, there are people who want to do an Ironman because it's such an endurance challenge, and and some of these athletes have never perhaps had a sporting background before. And as I said, you know, I I, I was you know swimming training with, with some Ironman athletes, and 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 really got a kind of insight into, that you know, the the, the mindset of, of of an Ironman athlete, which got me very interested. Um, I actually it was last summer that. Um, somebody came up to me, uh, a friend of mine, who had been to a talk that I'd given, uh, sort of way back in the spring. And he came up to me and he said, "I, I, you know that talk that you gave um, at the university um, in Cambridge uh, back in March, I think it was last year." He said, "You know, some of the things you said at that talk have really stuck with me, and and, and I'm still using, mean, I'm using them in my races, and I, I, I find it really interesting. Have you thought about producing something that?" that that could help athletes with some of the skills that you were talking about. And I said, well it's funny, I, I have actually thought about it, I've just not done anything about it. And I had had these ideas about putting together an online course to help give athletes race preparation from a psychological perspective. But I just had been too busy, hadn't got anything. But 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 him talking to me about this and him saying that he remembered some of the skills and been using some of them, you know, and the talk had been sort of, you know, six, nine months ago. Made me think maybe I should do this, and and I guess it's my my kind sort of educator in me as well. That with the teaching background is that I enjoy, I enjoy giving people content in a creative way, and you know which is what my job was as a teacher. You know is is, is trying to engage audiences, trying to to get people infused about a subject that I'm infused about. So uh, our mind was 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 created. Um, if if I'd have thought back back in the summer, um, oh, we just put together an online series of videos. I I realised the challenges that I would have along the way with that. I probably wouldn't have done it because uh, it's easier said than done. It, it it required a lot of time, effort, and work. Um, but but it's been a great project to do, and I, I'm so glad that it, it's now a project that that is out there and and that people can. Uh, can, can uh, use and, and, and hopefully get benefits from. I actually, it's worth saying as well that the, the course um, is is a six-week course to help people in the lead-up to an Ironman or an endurance event. I worked with uh, Lucy Gossage, who is a 12-time Ironman and endurance uh, winner. Uh, I worked with her at the latter stages of her career and we kind of use, done the videos together and used her story as a kind of backdrop to the, as it were, the psychology, the theory, but, um, that is the input that I give, so that people can kind of see in action what, what I did and the work that I did with her and how it helped her and the kind of the journey that she went on with it.
0: You talk there, so, yeah, you, I, I mind. I was going to say, you talked there a little bit about that journey, and I think that's... Um... From a, a psychology perspective, something that's I, I'm curious to see more people almost unpick, and that's kind of one of the things I'm hoping to do with the the podcast. Because as soon as athletes start to either come to the end or or finish their careers, that their views on a lot of things either change or they pull a lot of maybe things they're not particularly thought about before together and go, that really helped me at that point, or that was really useful or that influenced me in a way i'd not really thought about at the time because i was so immersed in what i was doing so talking to athletes really latter in their careers or say after them is i I tend to find you get a really rich discussion out of them in their reflections and like you said it's that story that then actually brings sometimes some quite um not necessarily dry material but it's sometimes it is just very theoretical and you can actually go here's an athlete sharing this as a story and for a lot of people they then go ah i see how that relates to that relates to that that
1: mm. well I, th- I think Lucy particularly now now she's you know she's recently retired but now when she looks back on her cl- career and reflects on it she actually says that she thinks that her mindset was her greatest asset as an athlete she went back to wo- she was a full-time professional athlete for a, a number of years and then went back to work part-time as an oncologist so she then raced as a professional Ironman athlete and was working part-time in the hospital as an oncologist So. You know, very high performing environments for both. She actually won eight Ironman races after she went back to work and was not a full time pro, which she says, you know, that that her mindset was was part of the success that she had with those other eight wins that she had. Because, you know, on paper, you know, she, she was treating cancer patients one day and then getting in the car, driving to, you know, Wales, to do Ironman Wales, having just done a 12-hour shift and was then able to uh, perform and win races. Uh, so the, the, I think she really realised the value of her mindset and how she, her approach to races uh, benefited her. But, you know, say so on, on paper, she was kind of like, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this. Uh, but, but by working at her psychology and her herself talk around that and her approach to those races meant that she could get herself to the start line and know that she had a chance of winning.
0: It's a very special mentality that, and I don't profess in any way to be an expert on Ironman, but I've, I know quite a few people who do it both from an amateur perspective and professionally. And I think, the when you have conversations with them about their their approach in both the lead up and and often their reviews on on their performances it's a very uh, I guess more from a a sporting background that I have where you know my events are an hour or less um, and not necessarily in a swimming pool but even if I go and play a a game of football or a game of squash or whatever it is I, I almost can't get my head around the concept of flogging yourself to exhaustion for 9, 10, 11, 12 hours and and go yeah that was really good fun and go i i I can't get my head around that
1: yeah yeah i i I mean you know different different sports um that there are different goals for different people i mean one of the things that we start off the video um in video one talking about is is what people's why is and and i think it's really really important for people to know that you know they I say There are some people that want to go out there and have a 16-hour event and day to, to to feel that they've completed their challenge, and there are other people that want to dive in a pool and do a 50 freestyle and swim it, you know, in in a matter of seconds. In a matter of seconds. You know that 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 people have have different reasons for doing different things, and for me, tapping into that that why of, of why you're doing it, what, what passion that you have behind your sport, and what it gives you is a really good starting point when we start looking at people's psychology because with the inevitable challenges that you get within whatever sport you're doing and whatever environment you're in going back to your why can be such a big motivator to help you push through you know a pain barrier or uh you know a challenge or adversity that 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 you might face so um that's
0: something for sure that from a from a psychology perspective so many of what i would consider world-class athletes um, and not just in in ironman or in in swimming but you you talk to any athletes that have very much excelled in their sport their their clarity of their why and the people around them's understanding of their why uh, especially when you're working with senior athletes and that 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 two-way relationship where it is a much more collaborative approach to maybe a lot more directive approach with young athletes um you can see that there is that clarity of why and it's a really curious area i've looked into before i've read a book i think it is start with why and you read it and you think you can see how the people that have done very well have absolute clarity on that and whenever they encounter their speed humps loop back and go yep this is really really tough but that's why i'm doing it therefore that's going to get me over that speed hump
1: Yeah, and I I think uh, what I found very interesting is, yes, having your clarity of why, but, but is there a passion about what you do as well? I would certainly say that I've worked with athletes that have a real genuine passion for the sport that they do and they happen to be very good at it. I would also say I've worked with athletes who are very good at their sport, but maybe they don't quite have the passion that I see in some other athletes. And I think the combination of the passion and the clarity of, the why um, it, it, it's the strongest combination uh, that, that you come up with as an athlete you know you can be very good at something and, and get success from it but you know on, on the hard training days where you know you've got to go out in the cold and the wet and you don't want to do it we all have those days right but 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 having a passion for the sport is what helps people get out the door you know is what, what helps people push themselves when it can be really really difficult um, so I think athletes exploring that helps them learn about their motivations behind why they're doing what they're doing because motivation does fluctuate and it will come and go as naturally it does that anyway elite athletes generally speaking do have really a really good sense of clarity as you say um elite athletes generally speaking know their strengths uh, it's, it's, it's an activity that I do actually quite a lot with people that I work with, um, particularly with younger ones. You know, I say, "Right, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I'm going to put you on the clock, and you've got to write down your strengths in your sport. What are they?" Or I might just ask them a question. You know, "What are your strengths in your sport?" And uh, it's really interesting how the majority of people I generally say the majority of people say to me, "Well, I'm I'm good at this, and I'm quite good at that." And I, by the third or fourth one, they've gone into a negative. They've gone into, yeah, but actually, I say I'm good at that, but I, did, I wasn't very good at that the other day. and I didn't race very well the other day when I did that. And they, and, and naturally, we, we we have a tendency, we're really good at knowing what we're not so good at. And we're, we're really poor, generally, at what we are good at. And again, that's all about change of focus. Elite athletes, can be very good at knowing what they're good at and by being really specific about what they're good at. So one of the things that I do when I work with people is, is, is try and, and come at it from a strengths-based approach. So the activity that I've just given you, the 60-second one, that's a very sort of general introduction to strengths, and we go into it into far more depth. So I'd look at an athlete's technical strengths, tactical strengths, emotional strengths, physical strengths, mental strengths, um, environmental contextual strengths you know so that an athlete has an overall picture of strengths that they have that can help them if you know motivation is low going into a race to help deal with pressure all of you know the strengths-based approach is so powerful so knowing your strengths as an athlete whether you're you know a a club athlete to to an elite athlete is um is a really good thing to work on and time investing in.
0: there's a um there's a coach that we're going to get on in I think season 2 of the the podcast when we get to it uh, after easter and he has a a really interesting way especially with younger athletes that are maybe not as either confident or as knowledgeable in their, their those processes that we talked about there and after every competition or every race that an athlete does he says before you go get changed, go home call cool down do whatever it is i want one good point and one bad point or one constructive <laughs> area for development and it for not it is a force effectively, but it starts to get the athletes from a young age going. That normally, if you ask a young athlete, regardless of generally the result, they'll go, "Yeah, that was awful. Yeah, it was rubbish. Or I could have done better." And actually saying, "What did you do well?" and starting from oh. an early age to try and get them to oh. think actually some of that was pretty good some of it was not so good but that's when no one's ever going to be perfect so there's always going to be a, a critical area which we can find but like you say the the ones that can start to develop that mindset of seeing their strengths and seeing positives are hugely powerful
1: it is and, and i certainly think that you know as i say from from a young age that could be developed how can that be developed i mean you know that club environment Um, coaches, support staff, is having regular conversations. Now, regular conversations take time. You know, when people are are training a lot of the time, you know, those conversations can be really short, but that can be built into the culture. So, you know, some of the work that I said that I do within teams is, you know, helping to create a team vision, help creating the things that are important within the team. And and again, conversations around strengths-based approach so that, that young people become... You know, they become confident, but they become comfortable with, with talking to each other about w- what they're good at, what those little details are that, that makes them, you know, the fast freestyler that they are, the agile hockey player that they are, that, that they don't feel embarrassed about talking about those, um, that, that, that they know that, that focusing on the things that they're doing well and the things that they're doing right will help keep confidence more robust. I mean that leads to another thing that I, I work I work on a, a huge amount um, with athletes that is on confidence. I would probably say that's the number one thing that I work at, at with them.
0: I'm very happy to hear you say that because I know we put together a, uh, a selection of four videos last year that we put out on um, my day jobs YouTube channel, and I think the first one had something like over a thousand hits in the first week, and that was around confidence, and it's maybe. For, for yourself it is, it's a very good timing to be going into this kind of world because there's been a distinct lack and, and I can only speak from kind of my view on it but I feel like over the last maybe 15-20 years there's been a distinct lack across the board of both psychological support from like you say some of the more obstacles but also around actually just building up confidence and things like that in the first place before any potential issues occur mm-hmm. um, so you're kind of entering the market at a good time.
1: I mean, it's such a key ingredient for performance, you know, not just in sport, but just in performance, performance generally. Um, co- you know, confidence is something which is a belief and people talk about it like it's a feeling, particularly young people. You know, I lost all my confidence. You hear people coming out of a race environment and saying words like that. You know, I lost all my confidence. They talk about confidence like it's this single construct, like it's just one thing. I either have it or I don't have it. Um, I'm filled with it or I lose it. Something goes badly and it's gone. You know, confidence is not a single construct. Confidence comes from a number of different places. It comes from sources of confidence. And and I work particularly, uh, you know, with athletes to develop what their sources of confidence are. So they know confidence comes from a number of different places. If it comes from a number of different places, you can tap into those different places at different times. So if something in your performance environment is not working for you, something is not um, going well, um, training or something's been going badly, it may be that that source of confidence isn't working for you at that time. That doesn't mean to say that your overall confidence can be completely taken away from you. You can then tap into other sources of confidence that you have and build on those and use those to help keep your confidence robust for whatever performance you're about to do. And and working with people to to get a real understanding of where those sources come from is so invaluable because, you know, you know you're going to perform better if you feel more confident and have more confidence and a belief that you can do what you're about to set out to do. So there's quite a lot of detail around confidence there. You know, I'd probably say, you know, two to three sessions that I have with people, we, we would work on that. Um, but then going into a competition, preparing for a race, you've got those things behind you. That they're, they're in your 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 thoughts. You're actively thinking about them. You're actively engaging with what those sources are to hopefully give you the best performance possible.
0: We um, or me and a group of coaches were at an event uh, a few weeks ago up in Derby, and um, one of the the presenters there showed a video of Jess Ennis before the hundred. 100- meter hurdles at the london olympics in the heptathlon and mm-hmm. he just talked about you know her processes and routines and the way in which she managed herself in terms of you know both from performance but like or emotionally and all those sorts of things and mm-hmm. the video panned around in front of her as they read out her name and he said i want you to watch how she breathes in the the stadium effectively as it goes absolutely berserk and absorbs it all takes focus on her event and then gets her head down and does the job and it, when you looked at it from that perspective you're like wow i can see all of that prep work that's been done behind the scenes and the lead up you know with the physiologists and the psychologists and your coaches and all those yeah. sorts of things and actually see it in the space of maybe 10-15 seconds that was a really really good way of articulating it yeah i mean it, it, it
1: so there's, there's a number of athletes that i work with and if you know if 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 I'm watching them, I know exactly what they're thinking at a given time so for example, I worked with a, a boxer recently, and uh, he had a number of issues with um, or, you know coming out into the ring when you've got hundreds of people kind of whooping and yelling there are lights flashing, people are cheering it was was a very challenging uh, for him coming out into that environment um so we we did a whole lot of kind of psychological preparation about helping him prepare for that moment and having a belief of confidence in terms of his body language and how he would do that from being sort of outside and being announced to coming into the boxing ring. Um, he also, once he got into the ring, was, was, was going to be called up by, uh, by the referee where he would then have to stare at the opponent. For a period of time while the referee was going through, um, you know, the, the, the rules of, of, of what was about to happen. And he found that very, very difficult um, to hold the gaze of his opponent, to also walk in in front of all of these people. So we had a plan from the moment he was outside the door before he was seen, for the uh, when the music started playing, when he was announced and what he would do in that moment up until the fight actually began. So I, I mean I have this on video now and I, I, I watch it and I, I sometimes show it in some of the talks that I give. I know exactly what he was thinking when he was standing outside the door. I know what he did with his hand movements, with his gloves. Uh that had all been planned. We planned everything. Uh, he he came up to uh his opponent, he he you know, we'd worked on him practicing, holding the stair. And then the fight was about to begin. He turned his back on his opponent. He bent down. He crouched twice. He did a certain movement with his boxing gloves. We planned all of that. And nobody, of course, in the audience would know that. But that, that's kind of the level of detail that, that you can go into people, to with people to, to help them perform to their best, um, knowing what he was going to be doing with his eyes, what he was going to be doing with his hands and his shoulders, to appear confident even if his heart was absolutely hammering inside. So, you know, I, I do similar, similar work with, with, with swimmers who are being announced walking up to the block. You know, they are, there are a lot of people watching them. They're, they're being announced. You know, a lot of people can feel that they're on show and they can become very self-conscious and it can be very distracting distracting to to the athlete before they're about to perform. And in that moment, you want their thinking to be absolutely focused on what it is that they're about to do. And distractions like that can be very, very difficult for people to manage. So so working on the kind of the details of that so that they have a plan in place means it's then hopefully uh, much easier for them to manage.
0: There's kind of two things that jump out of me from that is that, in a if from a physiological perspective, as coaches we have planned, um, and I you know again it doesn't really matter what sport you're in, but generally you plan a performance down to a pretty good level of detail. Usually from a preparation perspective, physiologically, technically, tactically, those sorts of things, and I, mm-hmm. I think there's a there's definitely been a gap there from a psychology point of view because if you look at some of if you want to call them, you know, some of the biggest chokes, if you actually look at it, it's not been through lack of um, physiological preparation. There's actually just been no consideration given to, like you say, when the music comes on, lights come on and the crowd start shouting and all those sorts of things. Well, that's part of the arena that we're going to send them into. And I think going forward, you're going to see a lot more coaches, even if it's... uh, a very basic level actually go as part of my preparation for our focus event this cycle or this year or whatever it is i need to build in a part of my planning that includes at least some element of psychological
1: development i mean obviously you know i'm a sports psychologist so i I agree with that but but i think often poor performance can be blamed on psychological reasons or people come away from a race or an event and say, oh, well, you know, this happened or that happened. It can often be a psychological reason. Um, People work so hard training their bodies physically for hours and hours and hours all of the time. And, you know, they're really good physically. We we know that people can, you know, swim fast or last the the course of a marathon because they've been physically training themselves to do that. But the psychological element comes into play really you know, hugely in the performance environment. So if you're working on the physical bit of your performance, why don't you work on the, on the psychological element as well? You know, And a lot of it can be planning for you know, potential derailers, things that you know might derail you in your performance. It's all part of preparation. So the more time that you invest in doing that, the more psychologically prepared you can feel. So that if a derailer does happen, you have a plan for it and you know what what you will do if if the situation arises.
0: I like the fact you used the word derailing there because that was one of the buzzwords that came up at a talk I attended recently. And it was given an example of a very, very honest and reflective coach who said about an athlete he had who was derailed by a number of things that went wrong in his preparation at a major event and the, the athlete, being a senior, was a lot more involved in that process. Afterwards, sat down to the coach and went, this can never happen again. I don't care what you have to put me through. From a training and development perspective, this can never happen to allow me to be derailed by some of these potentially silly little simple things. But actually, in the cauldron of sometimes these high-pressure environments, they're enough to really throw them off.
1: I mean, if that's the thing. It- I think as well, it's interesting, you know, you use the word silly little thing, you know, silly little things can absolutely derail a performance. And and I think afterwards, sometimes athletes think, oh, it it seems so small. It seems so insignificant. But actually when, when you really look at what happened, it might be something that's really small and it's okay that it's really small, but, but if, if you don't plan for it next time, it can derail you again. So, there's the whole kind of self-awareness piece which is a a huge part of the initial sessions that I work on with people is, is learning about yourself and what things might derail you in a given moment what 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 you might find particularly difficult what your past experiences have been in in things that have derailed you how did you cope with it how did you manage it what might work for you one time might not work for you another time um it's all part of of, of helping ourselves to, to to feel that we can manage and cope with an adversity that that inevitably in in, in a sporting context can can come our way. So, um, it, it, it's it's a the psychology is a is a piece of a, a bigger puzzle, but I like to think it's a very important piece and a piece which people really can see benefit from when they go out there and they then perform.
0: Yeah, and. I'm certainly don't mean um, silly in a condescending way, but certainly from a naive coach perspective, I think many of the little things that have derailed, people Are go, well, why would you spend so much time focusing on that? That's a tiny detail. And you go, well, actually, you're going to spend the next four years of your life and untamed hours and you know, financial and emotional investment in these performances. And actually, that thing could be the, the tiny thing that, that does derail it. And I remember, I think it was London Olympics, there was two athletes... Um, in a final and i spoke to the coach uh, or coaches i should say of those athletes and said what was the difference between the one that did exceptionally well and the one that didn't because on paper they were relatively identical they just said their psychological preparation was the, the one that achieved higher their psychological preparation was off the charts they treated that as as an equal and as an integral part of their development whereas the other one it was more of a no i'm okay no you know
1: yeah, I I I think um I, I mean I, I think you know psychology is not just for elite athletes, you know, that um I think more and more pe- people are seeing the benefits of of helping athletes in, in, in a number of different sports, um, that, that how beneficial it can be. Um preparation comes from yeah, an Olympic Games, but also, you know, a, a club gala. People have different t- challenges different belief systems about things and what you know might you know just going back to that word silly that you said you know that, that I think people have a tendency to sometimes see these things as silly whereas actually that they're, they're really really important and that's where those conversations about talking about challenges talking about things that people have means that they're more open in discussion and People use words and language like the word "silly." You know, oh, it's just something silly. That that's quite. A, it, it, that can stem from a, a put-down belief where somebody is putting themselves down and they're, you know, they're, they're they're sort of dismissing something, but it's actually quite important to them. And and that sort work around beliefs and where those thoughts are coming from. L- language and words is something that I spend quite a lot of time in. I, I think the value of noticing the words that we choose to use in a performance context can have such a a big impact upon people managing and controlling their emotions so for example um you know a lot of people can be very hard upon themselves i should have done this i i i really ought to have done that and actually that can stem from this belief of you know i'm not good enough you know I, i didn't i didn't you know but they're using language that's very rigid um you know what i call kind of black and white thinking and the more flexible we can be within our thinking the more flexible we can be within our beliefs will then help us to be able to focus on the things that we are good at which we were talking about earlier and and how that's much more beneficial for for performance um, and to look at the things that we are doing well so you know choice of words can be really powerful and have a re- really big impact so that's something that I certainly do with athletes that I work with young people that I work with is is the, the use of language and the particular words that you're using around the way that you talk about your own performance when you come away from a race how you talk about that can have an impact on your next race um and I, I do that with coaches as well but that just people being mindful of of the words that they use and the
0: conversations that they have. The the language thing is a huge thing because very often, um, again, reflecting more on my coaching years, there's a, an element of of bias, both conscious and unconscious, to the language you use based on either your own experiences or your personal beliefs, and mm-hmm. that can obviously, you know, from a psychology perspective, but from all training perspective, it is so individualised. Even if you're both doing the same sport for the same event and you're both the same age. Um, is there's so much individuality to it and the the language you use can be interpreted so differently by different people so uh, almost a self-awareness part on people working with athletes whether they're looking at it from a psychology perspective or not but just that self-awareness of well you've just said this but actually those two people in front of you have taken that very differently and i can't remember which mm-hmm. which coach it was that i did a did an observation session with and they said they they, they read out a sentence and said if I've got 30 people in the room, 15 of them don't understand it five of them are not interested um, and five of them are really up for it and they're going to absolutely smash it out the door and actually I probably need to explain it in two or three different ways if I'm going to increase the amount of buying that I get in a session and again that comes back down to language and the way in which we gauge with people as individuals. Yeah
1: absolutely and I think building relationships comes into that as well you know um, the relationship that you have and that that I have with my clients is is absolutely crucial in that I learn to understand that as you say what what how they respond to different information I know that i've I've sat in appointments with um athletes and a coach has maybe said a one thing to them that week, and it has impacted upon their whole week Now the coach probably just said the word didn't realize, and has no idea about the impact that that has had on that athlete um so the, the relationship, you know, obviously between athlete and, uh, and coach um, and, and, and performers, is is understanding each other, knowing the kind of person they are, how they're going to receive that information, whether they they, they interpret it in a helpful way or an unhelpful way, um, and and also that that. that sort of has a knock-on effect in terms of the athlete in terms of their self-awareness that you know am i receiving this information and it goes back to what i said about that evidence-based you know is, is it does it make sense that i'm responding in this way to what they said is that logical um is it helping me that i'm responding in this way so it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff you know um um i i love exploring people's belief systems their thinking the language that they use i, I think it's it's it, 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 yeah, it, it's really interesting and, and really interesting how they can then translate what they learn from it into their performance environment.
0: That's something that I think perhaps maybe a takeaway, not just for coaches, but anyone who supports and mentors somebody in a business role or, or or in any really role where you're you're in in charge or working with other people. Just that mindfulness and self awareness of the language you're using and the way in which that can build someone up, but equally knock them back down very quickly. And that obviously then has a detrimental effect on everything else.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, I, I want to drift on slightly. And that was a very, very fascinating part of the discussion. But the next bit I really want to delve into uh, is is the boat race, because it's such a bizarre uh, unusual, uh, unique, maybe, uh, uh, event that certainly in England it, everything seems to come to a stop every time it takes place. Um, and really, like you've had that insight into it of both the lead up but also being involved and in there. And I remember watching it last year and seeing you get off the minibus and going, Oh, there's Helen. And um, no, just really to, to to talk a little bit around that, because it's such a, a unique event, really, your experiences of that and the lessons you picked up from that and, and just really to share that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been, uh, this is my third year, I think, of being involved uh, with the boat race cruise. I predominantly work with the women and the lightweight uh, men and women's crews, which is a sort of grand total at the start of the year it's about, of about 70 to 75 athletes. Um, I start working with them uh, when they sort of come back uh, to university in September and work with them all the way through, um, you know, up until the boat race. Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, unique situation, the boat race in that, um, you know, it's one of the most highly viewed sporting races on the BBC. Uh, They have millions and millions of viewers uh, not just in the UK, but a worldwide audience. There are, 250,000 people watching on the banks and the boat race week is is a, a really interesting environment to be part of because these athletes, they work incredibly hard. Um, you know, they're, they're five, five o'clock in the morning, they're out on the river, they're then going to lectures and trying to balance their academic studies. Uh, then they go back to the boathouse and they're training again in the evening and it's often not till 9, 9.30 that they actually get back and then have to refuel and do their academic work and they're doing this you know seven days a week the bow race itself is they are very much on view and this is something which obviously in their seven days a week of training are doing um, i mean cambridge of the hours through the winter that they're, they're you know they're unknown people they're not they're not people who um people have heard of an athlete and suddenly in the lead up to the boat race and you know, all this stuff is going on now the media attention gets greater and greater. And these are people who've not necessarily been in front of cameras before uh, wherever they go during boat race week. They're normally there for between a week to 10 days before the boat race um, in and around Putney. They're like celebrities, um, you know the coffee shops are full of people who are asking them questions people are beeping their horns in their cars. they're walking along the street uh whenever they go out and do an outing uh they have cameras in their faces uh yes from the media but also from uh tourists uh just people who are who are curious so it really is a psychologically a very interesting environment for those athletes to be put into it's very much a an environment where they feel like they are being watched, and that can bring you know psychological challenges for those athletes. Um. So I, I you know, I've learned as the years go on that how how we work at managing that. I, I do a lot a lot of work with them individually, but I do work with them um, as a team as well. So, um, you know, in terms of creating a vision and um, for that team, we, we we write vision statements about how they're going to approach it. And then when we're actually at boat race, I'm there usually for sort of four or five days to support them through um, the the, the lead up to the race. Um, What have I learned from it? Um, I've I've learned that performance environments are very, very changeable. Uh, People think they're going to react in a certain way. um, And actually, it can be quite different in reality people are very resilient they do the more work and preparation again that they have put in in the lead up to a big event like that the more it helps them when it actually comes to it um and yeah i i think those are the kind of the the main takeaways from it that the preparation that we've put in beforehand actually i hope means that they find it more manageable when it actually comes to it
0: it's it's a really curious event, and I say, I've watched it for years, really before we I got to meet you, and and I've shared a few stories before, but it's it's such a a unique event in the sense of generally a lot of the principles we pick up transfer from either sport to sport or environment to environment, and actually, like you say, it's it's almost like a little bubble that like once a year for a period of about three or four weeks, suddenly their environment changes significantly. Um, And it's not something you can really um, simulate in the sense of if you take a a group of of young athletes, you can often take them to a big performance event and go, oh, this is what uh, national championships looks like or whatever it is. But to actually go, this is what walking into a coffee shop looks like when suddenly you're going to (laughs) start getting asked loads of questions. It must be quite a unique challenge.
1: It is, and I think, you know, we're fortunate in that, you know, each year there are returners, so people who've experienced it before, so they can share their experiences for the newcomers. They can talk about what, you know, that week is like. We, we you know, we talk about having the opportunity to to go out during, uh, you know, during the week to kind of get themselves sort of more used to the environment. So that might mean taking off their club kit walking out in the crowds for a bit on on race day so that people you know they're they're, they're anonymous um just to get a sense of the noise because the the, the noise on the bank is is, is absolutely huge um and just the crowds of people so just again to to get themselves used to that to I actually think that the the days in the lead up to the race do help the athletes to to kind of get get more used to it because the, the kind of the the event builds as the week goes on um, with sort of two to three days to go. The BBC start arriving and start putting up all the cameras. You know, it's a huge operation. I think they've actually made a television programme about the the, the 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 TV coverage of the boat race because it, it, it is one of the most challenging things for the BBC because it's live. And, you know, the course is so long, they have to position the cameras in certain places. So as the the, the days leading up to the race happen, you know, they see you know, the reporters arriving, BBC arriving, and, and, and it's kind of this drip feed of, of change as the days go on and the, the hours get closer towards the race. Um, you know, they have to go through sound checks, etc. the day before, so microphones are put on, they're all mic'd up. Again, that, that happens before the race, so they get used to having been recorded with the cameras the days before. So, a lot of a lot of that kind of them getting used to that environment happens in those last few days uh, before the race itself.
0: Very interesting. Well, I I hope that's that's shared, and we'll uh, we'll be sending this episode out the week of the boat race. So hopefully that'll prime people to be watching and seeing what's going on, and maybe see it with a slightly different lens. On um, mm-hmm. something, I, I just want to kind of pick up a little bit before we 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 finish is going forwards obviously it's such a and I don't mean new in the sense of psychology is new of course not but the the use of and the appreciation of the value in which psychology adds across the board like you say it's not just for elite athletes it's only it's exploding in the sense that we're getting so much more interest in it and so much more buy-in from people so what what's next for you what does that look like have you got any thoughts on where it's going to go next as as your consultancy or, or both for for you in the projects you're working on now
1: I think one of the things that particularly interests me um having done the work that I've done so far is is as you say this kind of interdisciplinary approach I really feel that I've seen the value of that in the work that I have done so far together. So, uh, you know, working in isolation is something that I find more challenging. When I'm in a, you know, a, a team environment, I think it makes the work that I do more, ben- you know, beneficial for, for for the performer. But 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 um, ultimately creates a, a better performance environment for the athlete. So. You know personally, for me, it's something that I would like to see more of and I get more involved in is a, a consistency of approach within all the stakeholders within a team or an athlete's world, um, because I think having the buy-in from all of those people, working collaboratively and collectively together, we're stronger together, and therefore that can translate into. A higher level of performance so that's that's something personally that I, I think having seen evidence of that is is an area that I would like to increase my work in the work um you know and add value to um in in, in the sports psychologist context um and, and also you know I love trying to help people get the best out of themselves um you know that 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 when you get when you get a phone call from an athlete saying I did it, you know, and I used those techniques that we talked about on Wednesday or whatever it was, you know, there's nothing better than feeling like you've you've made a real difference to to, to somebody in their performances, and um, I I hope to continue doing that.
0: Well, that's I guess a really nice message for us to kind of round this episode off with because I think generally in sport. Uh, and I'm speaking like across the board here from elite to performance across all sports, you find out an abundance of people who, one, are very passionate about what they do, but two, enjoy helping people be the best that they can be. And one of the, the phrases we, we picked up at an event I was at last week was the notion of everyone has their own Olympics. And actually, Mm. through these interdisciplinary teams, regardless of what level you work at, we actually allow people to achieve their Olympics, whatever that is. And that's a, a wonderful way to kind of bring this all to a close. Yes. Well, thank you, Kevin, for
1: having me.
0: Thank you very much. I'll make sure on our post-show we include all of the links to your various websites and social media platforms and um, we'll certainly be sharing some content and uh, be rooting for you when you're down with the team in Putney in a few weeks' time.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you
0: very much for your time, Helen. Thank you. Well, what a great episode that was. However, we are not done yet. As you will have seen in recent days, there has been a huge amount of sporting events cancelled all around the world, which of course leaves a lot of disappointed athletes. So, since recording the first part of this episode, and mindful of the huge amount of disheartened athletes that are out there, we've invited Helen back to the show to share her thoughts on how we can best support those facing disappointment. So, we're going to drop straight back in to part two of the show. Welcome back to the show, Helen.
1: Uh, thank you for having me again
0: <laughs> it's, uh, it's in
1: these strange times. <laughs> very
0: much so. It's only been, well, for us, it's episode six, and yet we're already mixing it up and changing the conventional way of doing a show, which is kind of what we started for in the first place, but I certainly didn't think it would be under these circumstances.
1: Yes, things seem to be changing day by day at the moment, don't
0: they? They certainly do. Well, I know it's only been a week since we did last speak, but in that time we obviously have lost a huge amount of sporting events. However, like sadly, the, the boat race has been part of that.
1: It has, uh, yes. We got, got the news yesterday uh, that it was uh, officially cancelled. Um, yeah, t- tough to take for everybody involved. I mean, not not just the athletes and coaches, but you know there are huge support teams around and committees and and, and people that that work towards get that race um, you know happening. So um, the, the whole community is is very sad that it's not going to be taking place. But obviously, understanding why it's not taking place as well.
0: Yeah, and seeing that bigger picture. And of course, you know, whether you're in grassroots sport all the way out to performance, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people out there. So, really, just wanted to pick your mind a little bit of the experiences you've got of how do we support those, or as athletes, how do we deal with that disappointment?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's been a lot of uncertainty for, for, for a number of weeks now, uh, which which is difficult, you know, psychological, psychologically for people, people to deal with uh, anyway. Now at least there's kind of clarification in terms of there's more sort of stability and there's confirmation that the events are actually not going to be um, on, so people can start to plan around those things. I I think the first thing to say is it's it's important for people to realise that it's okay for them to feel disappointed and sad about these events. And not being on, you know, they've been a big part of people's lives, days, weeks, months, early hours, training, work that's been put into these things. And and there'll definitely potentially be a sense of loss that that the event is not going to take place, but also training may be affected for some people as well. You know, it, 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 it's going to impact our lives. And, uh, and and I think to have that sense of loss of the things that sport gives you um, is, is a very natural thing. And it's okay to feel like that. So I guess that's the first thing I'd say is that um, to acknowledge that and recognize that, that that can be the case. Whether it's sadness, whether it's frustration, um, allow yourself some time to kind of process that. And that's what I'm going to be working on with the uh, boat race athletes um, today and tomorrow. We've we've got some meetings planned that originally were going to be boat race preparation and are now going to be kind of a reflection on what happened and 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 how people are feeling and dealing with it.
0: Yeah, it's obviously a very difficult situation, but I think if we look back uh, through many many sports journeys whether that's with a team or an athlete often a a disappointment becomes a a prerequisite and something that will actually go through that makes them stronger and helps develop their character and they come back stronger and then go on to do amazing wonderful things in the future
1: Yes, exactly. And I think if, if people are able to try and get a different perspective on the situation that we currently find ourselves in, that might be by kind of making a plan or you know, doing some research and, and, and seeing things as opportunities um, that they will help them get through tough times and maybe see things from a different perspective. Um, you know, p- people out there are hopefully still happy and healthy and fit um, and they can be thankful for that um, when, uh, you know, even if they can't do that, their event. So I think that kind of reframing the situation you, that you're in is a really good way forward for people. Um, try and see things more as an opportunity. What what, what does my situation, now, how does it now find me and what can I do instead? Um, how can I adapt? How can I be more flexible? What can I do to try and help myself in this situation? rather than stay in the phase of feeling the loss and the disappointment.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, and I'm coming at it more from the coaching angle here, but I think uh, athletes often get pulled so many different ways with their academics and perhaps other sports. And you said, oh, you know, I'd love it for my athletes just to be able to sit down and focus on whatever it is, whether that's their... Pre-pull routine, whether that's their nutritional needs, whether that's their goal setting and the way they work on that, and suddenly we've got a massive athlete population who are potentially going to be sitting at home for quite a while with plenty of time to fill.
1: Absolutely, I mean, we all have such busy lives, and they're so full lives, full of you know work and training, family, friends, you know, making money, jobs social occasions you know all of these things fill our lives so much and and uh, you know one of the things that i find when i sit down with athletes is very little time is invested into just kind of thinking about things and how things are going for you and so although the situation athletes might find them unplanned um maybe it's it it can be a beneficial kind of improvement space for people where they can actually have some time to reflect focus on the forgotten areas that maybe they have been advised to do by a coach and they haven't done um, before and, and actually just invest a bit more time in that and see what that can give them. Uh, you know, performance, as we know, is, is made up of so many different areas. So how about investing in, in one that, you know, you haven't put much focus in and, and see where it can take you.
0: I remember listening to a, a talk from the the British swimming head coach a few years ago in the run up to the Rio Olympics. And he was talking about how when it was first announced that, Uh, because of the TV schedule that the swimming finals in Rio were going to start at something like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and there'd been Mm. outroar, loads of people on social media saying this is outrageous. You can't expect athletes to perform at that time of night and his response to the coaches was brilliant. It's a challenge that we're going to immediately adopt from the start and see it as an opportunity whilst everyone else is going, this is unfair, we can't do this, I can't do that and we're going to go, right, how are we going to make the absolute best of it? And I think looking across the athletes that I've worked with previously, there's plenty out there that will go completely like you said at the start there. I'm disappointed and it's okay to, to feel that way. But what am I going to do for the coming days and weeks that is going to make the absolute best of the time that I've been gifted to spend focusing on these things?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I think in sport, you know, uh, particularly from a psychological point of view, we spend a lot of time with athletes saying, you know, focus on what you can control, um, particularly in a pressure environment. That can help you manage your emotions around that. And at the moment, we're in a situation where there are many uncontrollables, uh, and, and this is an opportunity for people to learn how to cope in those situations. To that you know, day by day as this uncertainty kind of continues and these uncontrollable things around us are continuing, we're all building resources to try and help ourselves cope with that, whether that's, you know, chatting to somebody else about it, managing our emotion around that, how we're responding to a news story on the television. And this this kind of flexible thinking is, is something which in the long term is, is beneficial not just in sport, but, but in life generally. So it is an opportunity to, to, to work on those skills of managing how we're dealing with uh, the uncontrollables in this situation.
0: There was a uh, study done a few years ago, I think it was called the Great British Medalist Study, and it, it looked at the difference between athletes that had maybe been pretty successful, but not um, extremely successful over a number of either Olympic or world cycles. And one of the things that was shown in, as being in common with the people that had uh, successful showed success again and again and again at a a top level was that they'd actually had quite an early um, if you want to call it traumatic experience in their life whether that was a massive hurdle they had to overcome with their health be it an injury or it was a a family loss or a, a massive problem at school or whatever it was but it was actually the fact they stepped up and got over that that allowed them to go on and do great things and now suddenly we've got a huge amount of athletes out there that have got this huge obstacle in front of them and I think more, I guess from a development point of view, certainly in my job, it's like right, what resources can we get out there as quickly as possible digitally that are going to help people overcome this and not just kind of deal with it now but actually make the most of it for the for their future benefits in sport
1: yeah absolutely it's 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 about developing you know resilience and and you know what personal qualities am I working on right right now that 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 can help me develop that resilience? you know you mentioned challenge, you know having a challenge mindset. Um, in relation to the situation that you find yourself in um, is is going to be much more beneficial long-term, you know, coupled with a helpful environment. You know, so it's about being creative with ideas. I I was just actually talking to a a friend this morning who's a fellow swimmer, and uh, we were talking about how we can keep connected because that social connection... um, with potential isolation coming up is going to be very very difficult for people and we've been talking already about ways that we can kind of form a group and we can do certain things to help ourselves with our breaststroke specifically uh, by doing exercises that are related to that strength and conditioning work Um, but do it together on an online forum Um, and, and you know we were just sort of bouncing ideas off each other and I thought well this could be the start of something and I think hopefully people will feel motivated to try and look at opportunities like that where they say how can we keep connected because that's going to be important for us all socially it will keep us you know fit and and uh you know working on skills that we need to do for our sport um so yeah trying to be creative around that and uh, and see it as a challenge
0: yep and that's certainly the route i'm going to take going forwards um I just want to say a big thank you for coming back on because I know it was a bit impromptu. But, um, you know, with with, with every uh, challenge comes an opportunity. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to, to pick your mind a little bit on what you thought about what is a situation that so many people are affected, what well, everyone in this country is affected by. And yet as a group of athletes, I don't think we've ever had a situation where we've had this many sporting events cancelled um, since well, certainly in peacetime, which is something that our generation can, cannot relate to. So um, I really appreciate you coming back on, Helen. Thank you so much for your input there.
1: Well, thank you and all the best to everybody in these challenging times and uh, let's uh, hope we can all make the best of our situation and see what we can do as an outcome from it.
0: Most certainly. Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Helen, there for sharing some great insights. We covered a range of areas, but there was a couple of things that jumped out for me. Firstly, being mindful of the details. Even the tiniest of things can make a huge difference, both in sporting performance and in life. Secondly, focusing on what we can control instead of investing our energies into things we can't. And finally, most certainly pertinent in these very uncertain times we all find ourselves in, treating every single challenge as an opportunity and making the best of whatever situation and certainly one right now that we all find ourselves in. We will all be getting used to a more digital lifestyle in the coming weeks, but we can choose to see this as a great opportunity to focus on some of those forgotten details and things perhaps we don't usually make time for. Helen has put together a great post, which is on her website, and I would encourage everyone to look at it. It shares some thoughts from a psychology perspective on the uncertain times we're all experiencing. Head over to thinkbelieveperform.co.uk for more information. Finally, If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you hit subscribe, seeing us as a lot of us are going to be working remotely over the coming weeks. If you have any guests you would like us to speak to, now is the perfect time to get those suggestions in. Just send us a message on social media or head over to our website, theroadmonkey.org for our email contact. We look forward to next week's show, which is with Olympic gold medal winning coach, John Rudd. In episode seven, we are exploring the coach's journey up the sporting equivalent of Mount Everest, the challenges and lessons learned along the way, and some great takeaways for anyone inspired by sporting achievement. We've got listeners in countries across the globe now, so just to finish off, a huge shout out to everyone listening. Have a safe, happy and healthy week, and we will see you next week for episode seven of the Rogue Monkey podcast.